Welcome to episode 89 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Welcome back to another episode. Um, Every once in a while, I have to give my tips from things that go wrong in my own session and let you guys hear my true confessions, kind of, and um, admit where I went wrong and let you guys learn from my mistakes. So today I had a student who became, for whatever reason, it was unclear, got very upset during a session and started hitting himself. And was very concerning and I had other students in the room also and I needed to I um, left had them have their cameras on I turned my camera off and hurried and called the school and in that moment I realized that I needed a faster way to get a hold of my people that were at the school um, because I was you know on hold and pushing the right extension numbers and all of these things as my student was in distress in the room. So it brought up me thinking about um, those kind of safety concerns that we should think about before something goes wrong. So I think it's very important to have the contact information of an adult that you can get a hold of very quickly if you need to in a session to know where your student physically is, whether that's in the school or geographically. You know, if something happens and you had maybe you were working with an older patient and you saw them pass out while they were on the screen, if you didn't know where they physically were, how are you going to call 911 <laughs> and, you know, let authorities know about that? And, you know, being aware of what's, um, around your client too to, for safety. I had one client that had his baby sister sleeping next to him in the bed while we were doing a session and the mom was not in the room. So that one was interesting. <laughs> so some things that can happen that you know, you might want to be more aware of and think of some safety concerns before something goes wrong instead of after. So I hope that's something that we can all take a moment to think about and make sure that we're considering. I agree. And, and that's, I, I talk to my students all the time when we're doing telepractice. I said, you know, I've, I've heard of situations where um, the telepractitioner, the, the clinician was watching and then could see beyond the patient. They were connecting to the patient's home and they could see beyond the patient and there was someone juggling the window, like they were trying to break in or something. Uh, and so they had to, you know, call the police and, and, but like you're saying, it could very easily be an adult who has a heart attack or a stroke and, or right. have some other medical issue or another child who's medically fragile and, need, and needs help immediately. Mm-hmm. And of course, with the school, knowing exactly who to have on speed dial, if, uh, mm-hmm. if you can't get, you know, something's going on and you, you have to get some assistance uh, to run in the room and de-escalate whatever may be happening. Right. So how, how did it, uh, how did the situation end? It, it turned out okay. I did get a hold of the secretary. She ran in there very quickly. It's a relatively small school, so she was able to get in there really quickly. And um, I'd also started an email. Sometimes that's a faster way to get a hold of people. Um, so I had started an email to get 
to send out to if that didn't work that I wasn't able to get them on the phone but they got it the situation de-escalated and the student was able to rejoin the session and was okay and probably be emailing some parents tonight too, so they're aware of the situation but yeah it's just I don't know our kids mental health I feel like is very fragile right now as as I think our um, nation's mental health is a little bit fragile right now, but especially our our young kids are absorbing a lot of that. So watching out for for things that could be concerning with that, and even like you know who who at your school can you report it to if your student is talking about you know self harm or or things like that too is another safety concern. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, the, so many issues with mental health right now, and I think we just we need to be super vigilant uh, with ourselves as well as with our uh, the children and the adults that we're serving. And and if we notice anything, we need to to step in and and, and be cognizant of what's going on and lend you know support where we can when when we see those things and hear those kinds of things being said for sure. It is a difficult time, and hopefully in another six months, we'll be in a better position nationally. We'll see. I hope so. I hope so. Well, on the podcast today, we have Ellen Cohn, and Ellen is uh, someone who's been working within ASHA for many years to really move telepractice forward. She was uh, at... uh, Uh, University of Pittsburgh for quite a while, did lots of work there. She has since moved on and we're going to check in with her to see what she's doing. And she'll also talk about telepractice ethics, which is a a topic that she really embraces and has been presenting on, but it's something we need to also be reminded of that, uh, that we have to remain ethical in how we deliver these services. She'll be great to have on. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. So, Ellen, welcome to the podcast. And for, for those people who have been living under a rock and don't know who you are, <laughs> please introduce yourself and share your background. Oh, thank you, Todd. Um, it's really an honor to be asked to to talk with you today and, and Kim. And uh, before I do that, I want to talk about you because I don't usually do these. And uh, when I when you came across my email, I said, yes, of course. And I wanted one of the reasons why was your incredible book. Um, I used this book and I'm a speech pathologist, okay, telepractice and audiology. I found myself teaching doctoral seminar and I expected doctoral students in speech pathology and the whole class except for one were AUD students and I was really short notice and I figured what what on earth do I do so I 
um, quickly ordered your book and they all got copies and they presented every chapter and they, um, they located research and they came up with these incredible projects. One of the most exciting courses I've ever taught because of the students and, and your book and everything you do is just quality. So I owe you big. <laughs> well, I'll send you a check for that endorsement. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. You're very kind. I really recommend this book. You're, so, you're very kind. Thank you. So you asked me to introduce myself. Um, well, let's see. Um, I graduated from um, Douglas College of Rutgers University in 1974. And then I went to Vandy, Vanderbilt, got my master's there. Then I did my PhD at Pitt. And I graduated from Pitt in 1980. And then after that, I did a variety of things. I um, was director of a speech and hearing clinic on, on campus. And I um, was teaching uh, different courses and uh, doing some private practice work. And so I decided um, finally to, you know, I had children and they were getting a bit older and it was time for, I was able to go back to work full time. And so I was um, hired by the, by, um, well, actually what happened was that my department was, um, was kind of like um, bought <laughs> or were stolen, whatever, um, by the School of Health and Rehab Sciences. Uh, there was this dean very in, seemed very aggressive and inventive, uh, but we were scared. We didn't know what this would mean, and so we all, you know, showed up at a new school, and he turned out to be amazing. Um, Clifford Brubaker, he's now retired, but I had the pleasure of working with him for over um, close to eighteen years, and. During that time, he kept sending me on new missions, and one was to learn about uh, CourseWeb. So I was in a dark room for a, a week instead of a free trip to Aspen, and I learned about CourseWeb, dreamed about CourseWeb. And uh, so then he, one of the things he did was he brought me into um, what's called an RERC, um, a research engineering um, research engineering research center on telerehabilitation, and. Uh, he had had one in University of Virginia. So he brought me into that and I was put in charge of um, dissemination. The only reason why was because they needed some more speech pathology expertise. So when I landed there, I was really just learning about telepractice and it was really exciting. And I was able to do just about whatever I wanted for a measly percentage of my salary. But at that point, I, um, I love working with this engineering team. I was able to um, establish with lots of um, good friends the um, special interest group um, at ASHA on telepractice. I was able to um, chair the same um, kind of group for the American Telemedicine Association and work on books. We, we published a book together and uh, started a journal. I mean, how incredible um, the opportunity to work with a journal and the journal um, was started in 2008, and it's still going strong. So um, I, you know, I'm still editing it. It's a lot of work, but I have great, you know, great team, great colleagues. It's all volunteer. It's an open journal, the Journal of um, International. It's the International Journal of Telerehabilitation. It's um, PubMed indexed. So I was able to do all that, and I was invited to be on the ATA board, American Telemedicine Association board. And I was the only rehab person, maybe still the only rehab person that had been on the board. And I, I served there for two terms. And um, again, I had great opportunities, was 
able to work with um, standards and guidelines uh, for several of the um, medical, um, usually medical disciplines. And I was also, I worked um, developing the accreditation program for HEA with um, two, other, um, two other physicians and um, one staff member. So we worked for, you know, close to a week on that. We, eventually it was transitioned to an independent agency um, to be, um, you know, to, so that there'd be no bias in terms of approving people. So that's how I got involved. And I met like the most wonderful colleagues and we, it's a close community. Telepractice is the close community. I'm saying telepractice because um, ASHA is the, actually the only association that uses the word telepractice. The um, American Occupational Therapy Association uses um, telehealth. Uh, physical therapy uses telehealth. The um, ATA uses um, telemedicine and many subsets of telemedicine like teledermatology that seems to be migrating towards telehealth. But ASHA alone uses um, telepractice. So that's why I'm referring it to it here. Um, some other um, telerehabilitation is also kind of a good umbrella term. And that's what the federal agency used that funded the RARCs. So that's how I got started. And it's always been really enjoyable and fun. So in terms of uh, how you've embraced uh, telepractice at the university setting, because, you know, what you were doing uh, in Pittsburgh was really before anyone else, I mean, just about anyone else was doing anything at, at a university, especially influencing, you know, speech language pathology and audiology. Um, how, how you've, you've just, you've just described how it all sort of came together, but how did it impact uh, professional training when you were there? Well, it was, um, I would guess, in a way, kind of segregated. Um, it wasn't into the speech department. It was um, the students in rehabilitation, science, and technology were engaged in setting up equipment and working. And uh, mm -hmm. rehabilitation counseling, um, Mike Permuka, mm -hmm. for example, um, Mike McHugh, um, they set up a laboratory and they were actually doing tele, you know, teletherapy. So we were doing demonstration projects and state-of-the-art meetings. Um, but I can't say that um, it's still not in in it's still not in, integrated into the um, communication science and department, um, science and disorders department. When I was teaching there up to a, a couple of years ago, I was including it in my classes. Uh, and so um, the students got a big dose of it and including teleethics, which you might, I think you wanted me to talk about later. So yeah, that's what happened. There's some other places that have been um, much better at integrating this into their departments. So I think you, you've been doing that. Um, Kentucky, University of Kentucky, Janine um, has been terrific. Maine has been doing it. Uh, people in Australia, a lot of times we just think of the United States, but in Australia, they've done great work with their students and it's, it's been multidisciplinary. So, yeah, and for a long time, they've been doing it in Australia. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. going to really shift the world uh, with their research, which people in the United States don't know as much about. Right. So, 
you know, Australia, they would have to take a plane out to serve a child, you know, or because <laughs> they lived in the outback, you know, and they, they finally they yeah. finally got you know internet connection, you know, nearby, and they were able to do it, you know, start doing more telepractice. But I well, they had some strong strong leadership. Um, Deb Theodorus um, mm -hmm. led uh, this incredible multidisciplinary team, and they they have a lot of doctoral students. They have faculty. Uh, I believe that the Queensland model is the model for universities. Mm -hmm. uh, they've done terrific work. And then in Italy, I've just, uh, I just moderated like at two in the morning, something like that. Um, some a research conference, they're doing great stuff. I mean, we're not, I, I'm seeing a lot of international articles come my way and I'm, I'm very impressed. So we have to look at the world um, and, and what they're doing. We, we are no longer, in, in many cases, the cutting edge. It's, it's some of these other countries are, are stepping up and, and doing things that, that, you know, frankly, we don't have some of the limitations, you know, with HIPAA. Well, they still have some of those things, but, you know, HIPAA and some other, you know, can't practice across state lines, all these other things, you know, uh, that kind of uh, hold us back. And I know there's good reasons to have those, you know, precautions mm -hmm. in, the, in place. But you look at some of these other countries who've already solved those issues. So they're like maybe five years ahead or 10 years ahead. The European Union has been doing that, too. So, yes, you mentioned um, state licensure issues, which is mm -hmm. uh, has been a real big irritant over here. ASHA <laughs> is, you know, it's amazing. ASHA all of a sudden started to come on board. And mm -hmm. I knew that was happening when I saw um, the CEO have a video about telepractice. I went, really? <laughs> this is shocking. They started to realize this was going to be the future. And so um, they're now working on a compact and they're making a lot of good progress. So that that's going to be solved. But when we first started the special interest group there, there was just a group of us and we're going, you know, when's this really going to tip? When is it going to tip? And and it was, I guess this is kind of morbid, but my, one of my grandparents was died in the pandemic in the 1800s. And so I was reading a lot about the pandemic and did some presentations on uh, how the pandemic telepractice would be useful in a pandemic. And several before, of us did, before 2020, you oh, did presentations before. on that? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, several of them. People kind of went, really? <laughs> this yeah. is a little off. But um, yeah. And so, it you know we we said this is gonna it's gonna be the tip tipping point and some of the the model for that was with what happened for, with ATM machines. Um, I'm old enough to remember they sent us this plastic and they said and you shall go to the machine and get your money. <laughs> we didn't trust the machines and oh. we didn't know how to use them. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden there was a big blizzard in New York City, kind of like what might be coming in a That's couple right. of days here. That's right. And yeah. and so people um, this this person from Citibank, a vice president, she she was really bold. She went and got a crew and she mm -hmm. showed people knocking on the door of the bank. No one would open the bank. They needed the right. money. They needed the money for hotels and to eat. Mm -hmm. And they filmed this and they showed, they put this on this ad on television. And that's when ATMs took off. And so it was not surprising that um, with the pandemic, that's when telepractice would take off. Yeah, it's it's yeah. sometimes, you know, good things come out of bad stuff, right? And this is one of them. 
Right. My, my sister has coined the term a COVID positive, meaning positive things that came out of COVID. It's <laughs> really good. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, so, watched, I've also watched um, this incredible evolution in terms of funding for telepractice. I mean, right. it's kind of shocking the amount of money, <laughs> excuse me, that is going into this. And We've, I figured out, well, you follow telemedicine and see what's going on there. Billions of dollars and all these different companies coming in. So um, you, it was, that was a big change in, you know, we're not in, in something that's just altruistic right now. We're, there's a lot of money being pumped into the system. Yeah, I, I remember reading <laughs> right before COVID, one of the, uh, biggest areas of, of concentration for hospital CEOs was telehealth and telemedicine in terms of where they were yeah. expending their money. And that was before COVID, you know, yeah. and so medicine and healthcare was moving in that direction and boom, it, you know, COVID hits. So it, it, it's, it's lots of money is being thrown in this area. That's for sure. Yeah. And you look at um, CVS getting involved in Nike for wearables and in cars, you know, it's possible to sit in a car and get waved. Isn't that horrifying? For me, that is. And, and you could put your, your hands on the wheel and they could tell your blood pressure and, and you know, your temperature, all kinds of stuff. So um, it's we're just at the beginning of this. You asked me where we're going. We're really at the beginning. Uh, it's going to be incredible. And I, I feel like for it to really push forward is that we do need some training at that graduate and pre-graduate level and not just having a bunch of professionals that come out and then figure out how to do telepractice. So where do you see that going and what can we do to push that forward? What do universities need to do to push that forward? What do us practicing out in the field need to do to push that forward? Well, we've talked, a lot of us have been talking about that. And one thing we think would help is if the praxis exam would add some telepractice questions. And if there would be um, clinical, um, you know, clinical practicum requirements, I think every um, healthcare professional uh, should have some experience with telepractice. You, you don't have, you, you actually can do it from room to room, right? And you don't even have to, it could be modeled, um, simulated, but Every, every student should be able to do that. And uh, we think that the reason that, you know, our curriculum are extremely packed with credits, but the curriculum does respond to the practice exam. So once that happens, I think that's going to be very, very helpful. The other thing that has to happen is there has to be a corpus of PhD, doc- of doctoral level people that are hired in tenure stream positions who then have enough research support and you know, right now, and also have like groups that work together, multidisciplinary centers. So it's kind of it's it's kind of a complex issue uh, in order to for it to really take off. And and we're not nearly there yet. I don't know too many people that have gotten tenure based upon a, a specialization in telepractice. Yeah, I've not heard of anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to be honest, no, I haven't. I mean, yeah. yeah. And we're, we're really interested in interprofessional education. Isn't this mm-hmm. an incredible opportunity uh, to uh, for systems, health systems, um, health systems and um, 
and universities in you know with health concentrations to to learn together about this. This is a, a great opportunity. I also um, had experience. I used to my my original dissertation, a lot of my early work, and is, I'm still doing um, keeping my toes in um, in terms of journal reviews is in cleft palate craniofacial, and that introduced me to teamwork um, and. You know, how wonderful it is to work with other disciplines. And so for the telepractice was a natural extension of working with cleft palate. So I've been very fortunate. It just sort of landed, landed for me. Right. And I think that I've said this before, but I think it so often gets overlooked that we think of telepractice as professional to the client connection. And we often forget that it can also be a professional to another professional with a client yes. connection too, and doing that cross-disciplinary training. Yeah, there's so a good example of that. Um, the Velocardiofacial um, Institute that Bob Sprinson um, and also, and Karen um, Golding Kushner works with that. They provide consultation to professionals, uh, and it's you know very valuable. So, you know, we all started out with this saying, "Gee, this is great." You know, we'll be able to help people who live far away and distribute expertise. But no one talks about that a lot right now. Um, it's it's really the the money behind it that is really dictating stuff. And my concern about it, the one thing I think could be a real problem is if people who are not wealthy, people um, who are in difficult neighborhoods to visit, um, they are relegated to just telehealth and they hardly ever see in person a PA or a physician. And so I've seen this where, you know, gee, I don't want to work with those people. You know, I don't want to get, I don't like, you know, it's a dangerous area. I don't want to get shot at. It's really easy for people to buy, you know, use their biases and ask them to use telehealth. Um, On the other hand, we see celebrities who their buses are outfitted for telehealth and there's concierge practices um, and airplanes and, and, and our astronauts use telehealth. Uh, So, um, cruise ships. So there's really a, a range of, of usage right now. But the, the ethics are concerning, you know, that, that right. yeah, could be misused. And I think, I think one of the questions that I've had is as we come out of this pandemic and we do think about more carefully selecting clients rather than doing it with everyone because it's the only thing we could do. How how do we do that ethically and carefully and make sure that it's not this like, you know, a, a crutch or a last resort, but is really used carefully? You know, those excellent points. And the hybrid models are really interesting where you, um, you do some in person and then some online. And there's not a lot of research about that. And people are also discriminating against different groups of people saying, I don't think they'd be good for telehealth without evidence for it. I mean, some of the most severe clients, um, their severe disorders are are doing very well with it. The other problem, Kim, is that people um, don't report negative results. Okay. When they do research, if it works well, they, they, you know, they publish it. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to publish negative results. This didn't work as well with this group of people, segment of people, why it didn't work. So we've got a kind of a bias in our research. Um, You know, our people 
are not reporting stuff that doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. Very true. And, and you, and so that's in a sense an ethical issue that needs to be addressed. You, you know, you're you're only reporting the good stuff, and you kind of, you know, some of the confirmation bias that also gets uh, factored in as well, uh, and that gets published as as research. Not not in in your journal, but <laughs> but you see oh. that out there from time to time. But let's. How have you seen some of these issues in terms of uh, ethics and telepractice? Uh, what what has been the most uh, not maybe egregious, but some of the thing, some of the areas that you you see that uh, continues to be a concern of yours? Well, I I want to start off by saying that uh, we're one of the most trusted professions, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that people that enter our professions usually have empathy, and they're clinically trained, so that makes usually them pretty nice and. The people that are um, doing things that are unlawful, um, that are nasty, are often the ones without empathy. You hear, oh, that person wasn't very good clinically. They barely finished their CF, but they have a huge position somewhere. Um, they have no empathy. And so I think if you have empathy, you're going to do the right thing in terms of ethics because you feel for people, right? You want to do the right thing. And so, you know, yes, there's Medicare fraud and all those things that we could do. But one of the problems I see is the way in which um, companies have taken over um, some school districts. And sometimes it's very good for the school district because they don't they don't have the money and um, they don't they can't find staff. And, you know, they really do need the help to have online therapy. But there's other situations where companies have come in and say, you know, really sold the superintendents a bill of goods and then can't staff up. And then, then we move to the question of comparability. ASHA um, says that we should have comparable services. Well, they don't really, ASHA doesn't define that too well. What do we mean by comparable services? If someone is working in a school, you know, in, in person and, and they're doing a good job, they should know the teachers. They should be relating to the curriculum. They should be on curriculum committees. Um, they should, everything they do should be toward the um, the client doing better educationally. But then when you bring in people part-time, they may not be paid for that kind of work. They may just be paid for their encounters um, with with the client. And so is that comparable? I'm, I'm not really sure that's comparable service if you're not um, interacting with the curriculum. There's a lot of very good companies out there, which I'm proud to, you know, to to put like on in my LinkedIn. But there's others that they don't offer very good training. Um, They just move in and and just um, it's a commodity and people are fired that are really good. And then there's the issue of our salaries. You know, what is I I really worry about this. We have students. I've seen students who were um, employed by traveling companies and. They, the company said, well, look, you know, what we can do for you is um, we'll pay for a year. You could go somewhere. We'll pay you a big amount of money for your per diem for food and for your apartment. We'll pay that, but we'll, your salary will be small. Okay, so what happens is they're not paying benefits. Um, the student isn't really um, developing Social Security benefits the way they would. And salaries are driven, being driven down. 
And so I'm really concerned about our profession buying into that, uh, where the salaries for telepractice are, you know, classically lower in for many companies. That's not good for us as a profession. Yeah. And I think what I've seen, because I've seen lots of arguments on Facebook about that and, you know, joined some of them, putting my two cents in with that. And I think part of the problem is that when you're doing teletherapy and you have the whole country to recruit from, there is a huge difference in cost of living between places. And teletherapy companies aren't taking that into account when they offer a a salary. So I'm in Utah. We have a relatively low cost of living and I am quite happy, honestly, with the amounts that I've gotten. And it's been more than some of the in-person jobs that I could get. Mm -hmm. And there are other people who are in somewhere like New York that are absolutely livid that some of us are accepting that, that amount of money. And so it's, and it just creates this other layer because yes, we don't want to, as a, as a whole drive a salary down, but when you have that, that they can get people from anywhere, how do you, that's just such a messy thing to negotiate, I think. Wow. That's interesting. I'd not heard of that issue. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. We're just developing. We're nascent. Um, And there's a lot, a lot of stuff to be worked out. I think so too. We have to be ethical. And some of the violations I've seen, well, someone would say, well, you know, I was a vocal coach and I have a private, I had a private practice, but now I've gotten my, my master's and I'm not allowed to do that anymore without state licensure. I could do that before. And so they might reframe what they're doing a different name, which is not a good thing. I think foreign dialect is easier to um, to manage that, but a lot of people are reframing what they're doing. Um, I'm I can do speech improvement without a you know a, my C's. So it's people are it's not very good when when those things happen. We need to protect our certification mm-hmm. and our salary. I don't need a license for talk better therapy that I can give. You, I'm sorry, you, uh, you just call it, you know, talk, talk better yeah. therapy. Talk and better. <laughs> That's really it doesn't good. say anything yeah. about talk better therapy. Talk better therapy. <laughs> no, I'll just do that. You should do something with that. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, those, those are, those are, are big issues that I think, uh, like you're saying, we're still, relatively new in this area of, of uh, this frontier, in a sense, of using technology and how to use it ethically across populations that we're serving. Um, and it's, you know, we need more research, we need more training of people. There's a lot of work left to be done. One play, one institution that's been really good about this is the VA system. Mm-hmm. Um, they've for years they've had very good training, and um, you know I really respect the work they're doing. So um, yeah, but most of our I think a lot of us are the field is naive. We're naive. We're not, mm-hmm. you know, we're not trained in business and finance, and mm-hmm. so it's very easy for us to be, you know, for the for the snowplow to come over us. <laughs> And that's, I think, is what's going to happen if we don't get smarter as a profession. Ash is in a rough position. 
you know, they are, but it's good. It's good that they're bringing in corporate sponsors. There's a learning um, curve that goes on between learning between them. That's really good. And there's been some publishers that are very accepting of telepractice books, which is, was really good. So we're, it's, things are going along well, but almost at warp speed um, since the pandemic. Uh, it's really been a huge shift. And, you know, I feel really badly for my university um, colleagues who all of a sudden they taught in the classroom and the next two days later, they're online, you know, and they're saying the same principles occur. Um, I mean, apply where, um, you know, anything I do teaching should be able to be done online. Um, um, it should convert really rapidly. So I think the stress level has been really high for people who are untrained. You people need mentors. They need on-site, you know, in the in the video Zoom mentors to help them. I believe that would be an ideal situation. Right. We're certainly seeing some of that, some of that, but not but not nearly enough of it uh, being done. Uh, yeah, especially universities, uh, you know, you, you're seeing some of that and some of the uh, coaching uh, from more senior uh, faculty to junior faculty or clinical faculty, vice versa, coaching and, and helping out. But it's it's still, mm-hmm. you know, a drop in the bucket that needs to, you know, really be increased dramatically. And something and you know, I've. <clears throat> I've seen, um, sorry to interrupt, I've seen some real young junior faculty who Mm -hmm. have gaming experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. Wow, they're in a position to really be innovative um, and and use simulations and artificial intelligence. So I see that going forward and universities are poorly um, equipped to deal with that. Unfortunately, you know, things are going to move way ahead of us if we don't figure out how to get into those games. I, I agree. And I think, you know, certainly with COVID, uh, we had to do a lot of simulation and use semi-case and all that to get hours. Uh, but, you know, it seems like this whole idea of using more and more simulation is, is going to be more of a permanent aspect of training going forward uh, of how we train speech language pathology, you know, students in speech language pathology and audiology. When Kim was going through, when we were together at Utah State, we didn't simulate anything. We just jumped in and did it. <laughs> I mean, because we didn't yeah, even think about that. <laughs> you know, we didn't even think about, oh, let's just simulate something and try these things out. You know, we, it didn't cross our mind that that was something we should probably do. But now it's becoming much more of a, uh, component and even ASHA endorsing so many hours can be yeah. simulated hours and count towards, you know, graduation and all that. Do you think students like that? No. I feel like I feel like it has its advantages, and you might not realize it unless you had done it the other way. <laughs> but yeah. I think it has its advantages in like not one of our ethical concerns and one thing that we have an ethical obligation to do is to not cause harm to 
a stu- a client, a child or whatever, and, um, you know, making sure that we know what we're doing before we get in there would be one of those things. Or And yeah. also doing the most good for our clients also, I think, as part of that. Maybe even if we're not doing harm, are we doing the most good when they're our first client that we've had when we've been in grad school for a week? Because that was me. <laughs> That's nauseating. I remember that. <laughs> I remember those clients. I remember that whole thing. My, um, my, some... Maybe I'm just old, but you know, my my uh, take on it, especially now as we're opening up clinics and things that are, you know, starting to see more and more clients back in our university clinics. If you're going to spend all this time developing simulations, you could actually be working with actual patients. <laughs> I mean, you could go Not out and recruit patients. those patients to come in and set up, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, so I, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about some of it. Because uh, I, I think it's uh, in some situations, not all, it's sort of an easy way out, we can just go in and talk about how mm-hmm. we give this test and I'll pretend to be this kind of patient and you grad student, you can give the test and I'll kind of act like I have aphasia, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, I I do get that that's some of that is actually very useful and helps students, you know, be better prepared for certain situations, but instead of. There's no substitute for the real thing. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And then I think, you know, when you have, frankly, a situation where a, let's say a, a, a white a Caucasian woman is imitating the speech of a uh, three-year-old African-American child in a simulation. Oh, no. Is that oh, appropriate? No. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, yeah. those kinds yeah. of things. Oh, it's my. like, wait a minute. Yeah. Something, something doesn't, it's just not right about oh. that. And so if we're going to simulate, let's simulate as close to actual cases as possible. Uh, and so how do we how do we do it that way? Whether we're using actors or using, you know, other types of uh, ways of, you know, video, whatever, I don't know. But I start to have issues when those kinds of things come up. Well, that's not good <laughs> at all. I know it's really, t- it's tough. Everyone's been trying to survive the pandemic, keep their programs running, keep students, you know, working, but um, there are certain sacrifices <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good one at all. And so what do you think about some of the other technologies? You mentioned gamification and, and some of the video games mm-hmm. and some of the younger faculty being more, I guess, embracing um, games and gaming and maybe using some of that technology. Uh, well, if it's very motiv- if they're motivating and they give opportunities for speech and interaction, sometimes I, I've been hearing that there's a lot of group work on, in a gaming site. There's a lot of people working and talking together in a group. So it's really hard to generalize. But I think the thing we don't know much about right now is um, AI, artificial intelligence. And it could really, um, I've seen some research that, that it may totally remove client um, clinicians from the clinical process in, in therapy, for example. There's a, 
um, at a university, I believe of Sydney in Australia, they're in a clinical trial for that. So, you know, yeah, and the thinking is that there's millions of people who have fluency issues and not enough um, not enough therapists. And so this is a way to efficiently help a lot of people. And I can't dispute that, but I really hate to see it generalized um, to our profession. Uh, we really have to think about, you know, what is what does it mean to be a clinician? And can AI show empathy, like you were talking about earlier? And showing yeah. empathy, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they can make it show empathy sometimes, but you know, not you know, not the same degree. I don't think. And what about um, there's all the cultural um, sensitivity that we should be having, and just general understanding of families and circumstances. So. You know, we it, it's what's happened is this has moved along so fast. Uh, we don't want to lose control over it. We have to really be more intentional about what what we accept. I, I saw a quote, and I've used it in a couple of my presentations. The quote was talking originally about teachers, and it said, "AI uh, will not replace teachers, but but." Teachers who know how to use technology will replace teachers who do not know how to use technology. Yeah. And I kind of co-opted that a little bit and said, well, speech language pathologists, we don't think right now AI is going to replace speech language pathologists, but <laughs> those speech language pathologists who know how to use technology are going to replace those who mm -hmm. don't and can't use yeah. it. Yeah. Well, look at just the ability to use an electronic health record. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, we weren't taught that years ago. I mean, you just, you're, we're going to have to learn certain technologies better. Um, and our universities, you know, we're, you hope when you send a student out for training that they're getting trained on that. But a lot of times they're not. You know, the people out in the field are pretty stressed and they're having productivity issues. And so, you know, the amount that they expose students to is going to suffer. It's kind of a tough situation right now. Then you think about, well, how many hours do we really need to train a student? You know, how much, what's the minimal amount of time? And I don't think we, um, you know, we, we haven't really um, dug into, into that very deeply. I agree. I agree. Wow. We could go on and on, Ellen, with uh, so much. And, and you have just continued to share so much knowledge about field and where we're going, but I think it's time for the most important part of our of our time together, and it's uh -oh. uh, <laughs> what we call what Kim and I call our moment of Zen. Um, so she, this is I do this because of her. She really wants this in every episode. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if you are familiar with the Proust questionnaire. Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. So we've adapted the Proust questionnaire a little bit. So uh, we're, we just have a few questions just to get to know you in a little bit different way. And so you can answer any way you want. Okay. Long answers or short answers. So what's the most used app on your phone? Oh, um, that's easy. The New York Times um, B puzzle. I'm obsessed with it. I want to get to genius level every day, no matter how long it takes. Yep, that's it. 
<laughs> Very nice. That's great. Um, what was the last TV show or movie that you streamed? Um, I mean, I is it acceptable? I saved it on the television. Except, okay. Oh, I watched that one. I forget the name of it, but the one about the classroom teacher was on last night. The, it's 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 the school the Abbott Abbott. Do you know the Adam name? something elementary? It's something yeah, with yeah, an A elementary. That was yeah, yeah. So good. That's so good. Yeah. Okay. We have. We have a house full of educators. Uh, my my husband's an educator. My sister-in-law that's living with us is an elementary school teacher, and I'm a speech-language pathologist in the schools. So we we quite enjoy that yeah. one, too, in our house. Yeah, it's really, I'm learning from it. It's great. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. Um, what's a favorite book? Your book. Hello, oh. <laughs> practice in audiology. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> You know, I have a stack of like um, 100 pandemic books behind me, which I haven't read. Oh, gee, my favorite book. A Gentleman in Moscow, I think, was an incredible book. Very nice. Um, by Amor, is it Tool? It, mm-hmm. it, it just shows someone who's in a difficult situation, who, um, who's resourceful and resilient and, and makes himself makes a good life and um, is helpful to his, 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 fa- his adopted child. I think she was adopted a child to me that it was beautifully written. So I really recommend that book. There's another book called the, about the library in Los Angeles, which I was really interesting, the role of that library and the development of it. And then I read, you know, trashy books, not too trashy, but you know, <laughs> mysteries and stuff. <laughs> um. If you could create one law or behavior that everyone had to follow, what would it be? Oh, it would be that um, all guns would be registered and people would have to pay a lot of money for the license and buy liability insurance. And have mental health exams. And have mental health exams. I think that's happening. There's one city that's requiring that just recently. Yeah. Yeah, the gun situation is terrible. I mean, we should be trained on, you know, shooter, active shooter training. That's ridiculous. And then train our classes on it. I mean, this is just, that's one thing I would change. And of course, the voting, voting, equitable voting, that vote, the two voting laws, I think are just critical to the democracy. Well, I agree too. You know, it's, it's amazing how we have to train our students for an active shooter, but we don't want them to wear a mask. Oh, yeah. We want them to be safe. Mm -hmm. We won't outlaw guns or regulate them, but we put them through these drills, but then we don't want them to wear masks because uh, it's, it's messed up. Anyway, um, who would you like to have dinner with dead or alive? Ah, Abraham Lincoln. He was my childhood, um, bestie (laughs) when I was like two or three he was my imaginary friend I still remember him yep it's so weird but that's who I'd like to have dinner with I I love Abraham I love love history I love love Lincoln and and reading about that time period (laughs) yeah Um, what's the scariest thing you've ever done and you can define scary in any way that you'd like ah I don't know. I'm not often scared to, to be Very honest. Good. 
So because you're packing a gun, aren't you? You you're registered. Uh, yeah, and you have right. a gun. <laughs> I I I was offered to do a parachute jump with the um, golden parachutes, golden yeah. knights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, golden knights. I was right. on. I was going on an army trip, and um, my dean kept saying, "Jump, Ellen, jump!" And I said, "No. What if you know? What if the guy's depressed?" <laughs> he, he said, "He he jump, Ellen, jump." I said, "What if there's something wrong with the plane?" And he, so, you know, this went on for weeks. He's telling me to jump. I never jumped. I sat in the in the in the bus with all these other people. They had rods in their legs and in their backs and everything. And guess what? That plane had a fuel line leak. Wow. So, yeah, they, it came down okay, but they were the kid. They were all pushed out. <laughs> so yeah, that that would. I don't like being too high up like that. Yeah. Yeah, that would. I don't think I'd do well with that either. I, I'm with you. Um, where is the most exotic or the farthest place you've been? Oh, gee, I haven't been all that. I, you know, having children and working and everything, I have my travels been more limited. But I, I was in Caracas when it was safe mm-hmm. to be there, and Europe, love Europe, and um, yeah, so. That's, I haven't gone all that far, but I've always enjoyed those trips. Nice. Very good. But I, uh, I won't go on a cruise. Okay. No cruises. <laughs> I think my wife won't go either. I mean, I, even before COVID, she was like, yeah. don't ever buy me a vacation, you know, a cruise, nothing. Don't ever think about it. Never. Okay. Never. You know, we've had never. friends yeah. who, you know, rave about <laughs> going, but. Oh, I love them. Like, <laughs> and I don't I like spa days either. Don't, yeah. don't, don't buy me a spa day. <laughs> now, what, what I could probably convince her to do, you know, you know those cruises over in London, we can go the, go up the Times? Yes, and I could do like, those. Yeah. You know, those, those kinds of cruises she might be able to do because you could jump off, yeah. you know, pretty quickly, you, you know, but not ocean. <laughs> um. Let's see. If you didn't choose your current profession, what would you like to try? That's interesting. I, I, I'm sorry I don't have legal background because I'd like to work for the Innocence Project. Oh, and nice. initially, yeah, initially I wanted to be in public relations. And I, mm-hmm. a lot of what I do, writing and the things mm-hmm. that I've done are in public relations. But my undergrad um, university didn't have a major in that. And I really didn't have any mentors, but that's probably what I would have done. My undergrad was in journalism and mass communications. So oh, it was a reporter in my first career. Oh, I see that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the old yep. days. Um, what is a pet peeve you have? That's a hard one. Think about this a minute. A pet peeve. I guess some language phrases put me off. I can't think of them right now, but uh, they really bother. I I hate to. I just hate to hear some of the language uh, that's used. Um, I I really wish people would wear their masks. That would be very helpful. That's my, or get vaccinated. That would be helpful too. So I guess those would be my pet peeves right now. Very good. Yeah. So here's the last question. And it is one of the original Proust questions. Uh, If heaven exists, 
what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh, uh, the swimming pool's over there. <laughs> <laughs> the lap pool's over there. <laughs> yeah, nice. sounds good. And here's a dog for you. And oh, there's your relatives, <laughs> but yeah, the lap pool. <laughs> That's great. Well, Ellen, you've, you've been a joy to talk to, and thank you for sharing so much with us uh, on the podcast. And and please come back uh, when you can. And how, how can and, people reach out to you if they want to interact? Oh, they can email me, um, ecohn at pit.edu, or I'm on LinkedIn. So I always, that's a real easy way to find me. I'm happy to talk on the phone. Uh, I'll give you my phone. You know, this is a closed meeting rate. So 412-760-1403. Always happy to talk. And uh, yeah, and this has been a joy. I, I don't get to talk to a lot of people now. This is really great. <laughs> my my teaching is all asynchronous. So I love, I love talking to you both. It's wonderful. Thanks again for everything. Good luck. My pleasure. You guys take care. Be safe. That was Dr. Ellen Cohn joining us on the podcast, and I couldn't be happier about that. She's been a leader in the field of telerehabilitation, telepractice, for a number of years, and she's someone that I've always looked up to. So I'm, I'm thrilled that she was able to join us on this episode of the podcast. And as you heard, she's still working very hard to make telepractice a reality for more and more professionals. And with that, thank you for joining us on this episode. Please leave us a five-star review. That always helps us to attract new subscribers and to grow this podcast. Uh, tell a friend about us if you don't mind. That would be great. We want to get as many people involved with this podcast as we possibly can. We'll be back again next week with another exciting episode. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.